Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in to The Sediment, the official ASPN conference podcast. This is the first virtual ASPN conference, and although we aren't together and are exhausted after a long day of Zoom talks, we hope this podcast can provide you an opportunity to filter all the information you've received and come away with little pellets of knowledge, The Sediment. Today is Monday, May 3rd, 2021. Let's take a listen. Hey, uh, good evening, everyone. Welcome to the fourth day of uh, The Sediment, the official ASPN podcast for PAS. My name is Sudha Mannemuddu. For uh, today's, we go by Sudha M. And uh, I am a newly minted pediatric nephrologist from East Tennessee Children's Hospital, and I'll be your host today. My name is Vekas Tarni Darkal. I am a pediatric nephrologist at Washington University of St. Louis and St. Louis Children's Hospital. Um, I trained under Dr. Summers many, many decades ago in my fellowship in Boston. But my fun fact is that I play in the St. Louis Table Tennis League, had the honor of representing Missouri actually in the national games in my age category a couple of years ago, came in fourth in the men's doubles, mixed doubles, hoping to go back there when it's back up again. That's wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. I was about to ask you, I haven't heard any tweets about your uh, TT lately. <laughs> Hi, I'm Sarah Swartz. I'm a chief nephrologist from Texas Children's in Houston. Um, and I guess a fun fact for me is I've always really enjoyed the PAS, um, getting relatively comfortable with the virtual platform. But uh, and I truly do miss uh, PAS as I associate the meeting with going to get French fries with some of my closest friends and colleagues and look forward to us being able to do that again um, in the very near future. Have French fries in every different city uh, PAS has been in. Hi, I'm Michael Summers. I'm from Boston Children's Hospital. Um, I am uh, basically a pretty risk averse person. However, I um, married someone who's not risk averse at all. In fact, she thrives on forcing me to do things that um, uh, make me uncomfortable. So uh, I can say that I have gone whitewater rafting on five continents. Oh wow. my goodness, <laughs> that's amazing. And you survived to tell the tale. So I think you are an adventurer. <laughs> Uh, I, I would have been happier to say that, like, I soaked in bathtubs on five continents. <laughs> I'm Aaron Whiteman. I'm a pediatric nephrologist and bioethicist at the University of Washington in Seattle Children's. Um, I, I'll do two fun facts. So I, I learned listening to the podcast yesterday that, like Dr. Brophy, I am a hockey player. Um, and the second one I, I learned on my uh, session today that I am, was one of three twin parents uh, participating. Yes, I have the other, I have one of the other set of twins. Mine are the oldest though. Two twin parents on the same podcast. Mm -hmm. How do you yeah. guys do it? I mean, I don't have twins, but really it's AP week and I can't, I mean, I, I need to clone myself to get everything to work. <laughs> I truly think we didn't know any different, to be honest with you, because our third is definitely keeps us on our toes and she's only one of them. So I'm not really sure, you know, Maybe we were younger, I don't know. Hi, I'm Aviva Goldberg. I'm a pediatric nephrologist and ethicist in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. 
like Brophy uh, and Erin, I'm a hockey player too. Um, but my fun fact about myself is that I was once an extra in a movie with Jennifer Lopez. What? If you're wondering, yeah. she is just as beautiful in person, maybe even more so than on screen. All right. Now we are finding out through the sediment that we have a lot of pediatric nephrologists who are either related to celebrities or are minor celebrities themselves. So I was asked to Zoom bomb. So here I am. What? Yes. How did this happen? <laughs> well, this is the best kind of Zoom bombing. <laughs> welcome. Welcome to the sediment. We are excited to have you. And uh, of course, there's Dr. Somers here on. So we are looking forward to a great discussion with both of you on here. I hope you can both stay for both of the panel discussions. So <laughs> I'm Sudha Garimela. I am an associate professor at uh, University of South Carolina, not to be confused with California. <laughs> and a fun fact about myself is that I also happen to have started hosting another podcast uh, since the pandemic started. I'm a history buff, and that podcast, I'm going to give a little plug, is called History Written by the Losers. So um, we'll start with uh, Michael. So I have a few questions for you. First question I want to ask is, are you going to get a Twitter account for us? <laughs> oh, I, I, so many people try to shame me daily into that, but I will. I will. Michael, if I could do it when I was ASPN president, you can do it. I know. That was a requirement as being ASPN president that you have a Twitter account. Of course. But I think I have now realized that the way to get him to do that is to appeal to his better half. No, it would probably be yes. my kids. Yeah. <laughs> They've been plaguing me for, for years. We're going to put you on the list of people who need to get on Twitter by tomorrow. So well, I've been for February. I want to have a really good handle, and that's the problem. <laughs> oh, you know who is great at handles? It's Maury Pinsk. So we could we <laughs> could make a, a a Twitter poll to come up with a handle <laughs> for Michael. Yes, you could give him ESPN President Twenty One as his handle. I have a very boring handle, but my husband thought it was the best one that for me to have. So that's all right. Anyone else who is not on Twitter in our panel? Well, uh, Dr. Whiteman not. is not on Twitter, yeah, but um, is not. I think he'll be the 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 um, toughest case. Is that a challenge? <laughs> we'll have to get I, you on Twitter too. I do not Twitter. Okay, you just you just um, yeah yeah. If you're saying you do not Twitter, then I know that you are you do not you're not on Twitter. So uh, Michael, we have now I have a real question for you. So what what are your upcoming initiatives that are planned by ASPN for the coming year? Great question. Um, as I mentioned, you know we found over the last year uh, that we can be really pretty nimble in the face of the pandemic and by leveraging uh, Zoom and, and virtual platforms, the committees have become increasingly active and I think uh, increasingly cohesive as well. Um, and we had our council meeting the end of last week and uh, many of the committee chairs came to meet with us um, to discuss uh, 
where their committee stands with some projects going forward. And some of them uh, that are ongoing and for the uh, next year are, are really pretty exciting. Um, the Clinical Affairs Committee, um, as most people are aware, spent a lot of time last year putting together resources for COVID and the pandemic, and especially in the early days of the pandemic, they really did uh, Herculean work in terms of bringing resources together and sharing those resources internationally. Um, recently, they've been involved with a quite interesting project with the pediatric um, renal dietitians of North America, um, and they've uh, who've put together this very comprehensive handbook. And the Clinical Affairs Committee um, has added uh, to that as well. So that's going to be a resource uh, for all of us in pediatric nephrology um, to augment those dietitians that we plague every day, uh, for sure. Um, the Workforce Committee um, has been continued to be really active this year. They published a white paper um, dealing with uh, difficulties with the workforce issue in pediatric nephrology and uh, a follow-up for the summit that we had a few years ago. Um, they continue to work with various committees. They're pointed towards uh, trying to ensure that we have a good pipeline of pediatric nephrologists going forward. Um, and uh, uh, they have some projects uh, for, for this year uh, planned that I, I think are, are going to be um, quite interesting for everyone to hear as, as, as they let the news of, of those out. Uh, the Member Education Committee um, has been continued their uh, webinars um, that they've been doing um, for a while now in, in terms of uh, uh, pathology and, and imaging. Um, and those have been very successful. Um, the Member Education Committee uh, also helped to um, uh, put together the affiliate meeting last year, um, which was the most successful affiliate meeting that we've had. There are over 150 affiliate members who uh, partook of, again, a virtual meeting, and they've already planned a program uh, for this fall for another virtual uh, meeting. And um, uh, they're, in fact, starting to plan for the year after that as, as well. Um, so they're continuing to, to roll. Um, the Public Policy Committee has had several uh, virtual Capitol Hill days, so a lot of advocacy work that's been ongoing. Um, and uh, Sarah and Joseph have both been uh, members of some of those, those efforts. Um, and we continue to be in close communication with CMS about issues for end-stage kidney disease payment and dialysis payment. Um, and you know, we're making progress, slow but, but steady. Um, we also continue to coordinate lots of work with the other uh, professional kidney organizations such as ASN and uh, RPA. Um, the foundation um, has uh, uh, been quite successful with fundraising during a period of time where lots of fundraising has been stymied. Um, and one of the things the foundation um, has championed over the last few years has been the history project. So making sure the history of pediatric nephrology and in the uh, North America and the ASPN in, in particular is being captured. Um, uh, our history is actually being archived at the uh, University of Virginia. 
Um, and one of the things that the History Project is going to try to do is to capture a bit of the history that we're all living now. Um, and they're going to put together a roundtable discussion about the pandemic and what the pandemics meant uh, for pediatric nephrology and pediatric nephrology practice. So I think that's um, going to be uh, uh, something that will be uh, special for all of us to, to, to hear. So again, lots and lots of, of things going, going on and, and going forward. Um, you know, this meeting um, is testament um, to the great ideas that members of the society have, uh, to the hard work of so many members of the society and especially the program uh, committee. Uh, so uh, Maury, who's I guess in between coming up with a Twitter handle. Um, he, we're going to give him some time for his adrenals to stop having atrophied from all the stress of putting this meeting together. But again, very, very successfully put together this virtual uh, a meeting. Um, and uh, uh, Dave Saluski is chairing next year's meeting. Um, and the program committee has already uh, been hard at work for next year's meeting as well. Um, so it, the business meeting that will occur in a, a few weeks, um, we're going to have some report outs from more of these committees in more granular detail that the members can hear from and we'll learn more, uh, you know, all of us in, in detail about what's going to happen uh, in the rest of 2021 and going into 2022. Absolutely, Perfect. and here is where I throw in the plug because Dr. Ahn, who is the membership committee chair, is requesting everyone who has not re-upped their membership yet to ASPN to please do it ASAP because our membership numbers have, well, understandably dropped this year. But if you were a member every year and you haven't re-upped it this year, you can go online and do it today. Thank you. Maybe you should tweet ASPN ASAP. There you go. <laughs> So that I just, yes. can I jump in with one more question? And this is yes. for uh, everybody, all answer this. I know it's been a very rough year uh, with the pandemic. And initially I remember actually, I think it was um, Dr. Rolt who had written a blog about how like she felt very disempowered because as ped pediatricians and pediatric nephrologists, we were not at the forefront of fighting COVID, but now an year into this and seeing how pediatrics is also involved in this, we're seeing more and more children with this. What are your thoughts moving forward as to pandemic wise as pediatric nephrologists, where do we fit in? What is our role? I'm gonna start with that. Um, I think that we did see a role for us initially too. In the beginning, there were all these dialysis flu shortages that affected in all of us as also in our dialysis units to take so many restrictions on board to help our patients not get COVID. Some of them still did. Um, and I can remember we dialyzed several of our own patients and several of somebody else's patients. The, and we had to set up actually our Aquadex program much quicker because of the shortage of the fluids that would be used in a typical CRRT. To that extent, I think it uh, was definitely something we were involved in. Uh, transplants, all of our transplants stopped except the most needed disease donor transplants that were highly sensitized, and that affected our children too. Uh, so I think we were affected. I sat in on a lot of District 6 uh, chapter calls for the AP, 
where I heard from so many pediatricians where their offices were closed and they didn't get any relief money at all when the feds did the first round of stimulus because it all went to the adult programs. So had to hear their stories of how they were trying to advocate for a forgotten community in a way in terms of that stimulus money. Uh, I think those have all gotten better, thankfully. I think we have an important um, advocacy role in terms of promoting vaccination. And, you know, in my in my own clinic, just talking to families, and I, I think I managed to convince a handful of people every week to get vaccinated. So, I mean, clearly, all the things that Vikas talked about have been important issues. But you know. We need to make sure that our families, our patients and families get vaccinated and uh, to protect them from this, because this virus is not going to go away. I, I think as a group, we've done a very good job educating our families, not only on vaccine awareness, but also how to stay, how to stay safe. Um, there were a lot of different recommendations that came through. Um, from the CDC on how to reduce spread of COVID. Um, I think from our chronic uh, care standpoint, I think pediatric dialysis units learned a lot about emergency preparedness um, that you know typically we deal with from natural disasters, but not as much from an infectious standpoint. And so learning how to um, deal with a potential infectious emergency came up a lot of uh, times as well. Um, but we also, um, I think as a group learned about telemedicine, but more importantly, I think some uh, just differences that our families faced as um, schools became virtual and our children that struggle with education and miss school, really um, how, do we, how do we provide them resources to help them um, overcome those barriers not only technically with um, lack of broadband and, and resources, but also just from a learning perspective when so many of our patients have 504s or OHI and just accommodations in school um, that they really didn't have access to those things um, during all of this initiation. I think we've as a group learned how to provide more resources through our um, interdisciplinary teams um, to help these families uh, cope with some of the isolation that was associated with COVID and um, the pandemic as we've moved forward. I, I do wanna also um, acknowledge those members of our community who actually were on the front line because especially the pediatric nephrologists in New York, many of them were called to take care of adults um, and to take care of, of um, adult COVID patients as well. Um, and one of our um, colleagues, Namrata Jane, um, actually wrote an op-ed piece about her experiences yes. working um, in an adult ICU um, uh, during the pandemic. So, you know, there were, were some people who really had to uh, step up and um, definitely go outside our usual clinical comfort zone. Yes, it was wonderful to see that collaboration and those resources of how to work in adult ICUs that were put out by the pediatrics community. That was really great. Aviva, you're in Canada, so it's a little different there still, right, with vaccine access? 
Yeah, so I mean, I think it's great that uh, Dr. Summers uh, acknowledged uh, the people who stood up, who um, stepped forward to help out adult colleagues uh, during the worst of it in places like New York. And just, I know that our membership is mainly American and Canadian, but of course there are parts of the world where this uh, pandemic is far from over. We're still in the absolute um, worst of it. And so our hearts of course, go out to those communities. Um, here in Canada, we have had lower access to vaccines than our friends in the US. Um, still, you know, compared to many other countries, much more fortunate, but we are in the middle of a third wave here in Canada. And I think what we've done as pediatric nephrologists is uh, to be nimble, just as you have um, in the States, to step up when needed, whether that's delaying transition of pediatric patients, which we've done for some transplant patients and, and dialysis patients, um, you know, welcoming, uh, we haven't done this locally, although we might get to that point, welcoming uh, young adults into our children's hospitals if and when necessary, and that has happened in other places in Canada. Um, and then just, you know, the solidarity of, of knowing that our colleagues um, in adult medicine are going through going through um, something truly truly unimaginable to most of us, um, and how we can support them in whatever ways um, whatever ways they need. But uh, practically, we've done that here by by trying to delay transition, and then as as my colleagues have already said, vaccine education. I've also learned a lot from my patients who've said this isolation thing and hand hygiene and stuff. We've been doing this forever. <laughs> That's what transplant is, um, and for them, for some of them, they were educating, of course, there their neighbors and schoolmates and stuff about you know how to how to do these things well so learned a lot from them throughout this as always so um we are um i just want to move on to the few questions that i want to ask you based on the symposia this morning etc so i'll start with sarah <laughs> okay so since you are in one of the biggest hospitals baylor managing dialysis unit so what can we do for our HD kids in terms of uh, managing their pain, their um, restless leg syndrome, their sleep? So, you know, I think one of the hardest things that we do is um, help families try to define care, goals of care and what, what are things that are valuable to them and how, how we, um, try to address some of the primary palliative care um, initiatives. So how do we address symptoms? How do we address uh, um, things that are of value to the families and make sure that our care goals are actually aligning with what their goals are? And so I think one of the very um, important points that came up through um, the symposium was really the resource that palliative care offers to our families, not only from a primary palliative care standpoint, which I think most of us as pediatric nephrologists feel very comfortable addressing, making sure are, are being communicated and talked about at um, patient interactions, but also where is the role of the secondary palliative care? What extra resources can we um, develop and um, obtained from our colleagues by broadening our, um, our, our multidisciplinary team, if that makes sense. Yes. 
you know what what I might add to, to Sarah's response if, if I could is you know we, we could ask we could be transparent about asking uh, we could be systematic about asking and you know one, one of the easiest ways not to deal with with these symptoms is if we don't know about them or we don't uh, if we don't bring them up uh, as as um, you know in, in, in increasingly I, I, I've come to appreciate that that my patients experience things that they don't necessarily tell me unless I ask them. Uh, and and I, I, I think part of the, the appreciation of our role of doing primary palliative care is recognition that that falls within our scope of practice. And, and not only do we need to be thinking about it, we need to actively in, engage and ask these questions uh, to our patients and to their families. Otherwise, I completely agree with everything Sarah says. Well, and I think it's more than just in the ESKD realm, okay? I think one of the key points is that probably it needs to happen before a child needs to be considered for dialysis or for transplant. These are symptoms and, you know, lifestyle changes, effects that affect our patients with chronic kidney disease, our patients with nephrotic syndrome who have normal kidney function, um, our patients who we see for reflux and hypertension, any child who is on medications or has a chronic medical issue, um, these are important things to address, whether it's pill burden, whether it's symptoms of problems sleeping, whether it's um, anxiety of being different than their, their peers. Um, and so making sure that we're spending the time not only to ask what their blood pressure is, what their, you know, what their energy level is like, but also how are they sleeping, how is school going, um, are they making friends? Are there any interpersonal issues from the child, but also from the parents and addressing and recognizing that there's caregiver burden in whatever, uh, I guess, spectrum of chronic kidney disease um, a child has. So um, this can be answered by Sarah, Aviva, or Aaron. So regarding the issues that we talked about today, either uh, regarding to compassionate care or caregiver burden or this, uh, what Sarah talked about, uh, addressing the patient as a whole, not just a part of nephrology. Are there any resources out there that we can use to educate ourselves, particularly for a newly minted nephrologist scary journey like me? Aaron, that's all you, my friend. To that end, yes, absolutely there are resources. Um, we, we shared a couple of them in the, um, during the, 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 the session, but I'll, I'll highlight in particular Vital Talks or vitaltalks.org, which is a nonprofit organization uh, uh, led in part by some of my colleagues at the UW, uh, University of Washington. Yes, that, that Sarah introduced into the chat. Um, that offers uh, free uh, videos, free educational resources in difficult communication in uh, engaging in goals of care discussions, discussing prognosis, uncertainty, difficult uh, identifying goals of care, um, and is, is terrific. They also have an app which you can carry on your phone and use as a quick reference to prepare for a, a, a family meeting or a challenging conversation, uh, which is evidence-based, and you can link to the, uh, to the references right through the app, which is also very helpful. NephroTalk is, is a similar resource, which is just uh, nephro-talk.com uh, that was developed uh, in the kidney supportive care on the adult side, is focused in large part on dialysis, but is also a very helpful resource. 
uh, for, for communication, uh, in particular around uh, goals of care for, for nephrology. In general, in, in, you know, another resource that uh, got mentioned in, in our session that I, I just, I think it's a terrific document and it's also free is, is the RPA clinical practice guideline on shared decision-making and initiation withholding and withdrawing of uh, renal replacement treatments, um, which I, I, I still think provides the best uh, broad overview of thinking through decisions for, for children and, and frankly for adults with, with kidney failure. And as, as part of that actually has a discussion about considering and they recommend considering palliative care actually for uh, all children with kidney failure beginning uh, around the time of diagnosis or when the time of diagnosis becomes clear. I think one of the key points in all of that is to recognize and realize these discussions aren't easy to have, but just as we struggle sometimes to have them, the families are struggling with the topics that we're asking them to discuss and to consider. And so it's important to not have to try to have them ahead of time and not to have them in the heat of the moment, but to start discussing what does it mean um, as your chronic kidney disease is going to progress? What does the future look like? Um, and what are some of the important things that you as the family want to accomplish and your child wants to accomplish so that as this course evolves, those can continue to be discussed and rediscussed. Um, I, I think that some of this depends on how strong your interdisciplinary team is as to where in this process um, secondary palliative care services really can play a key role or, or do, we, do you get them sooner versus later? Um, you know, if you're struggling with some of these discussions, it's very helpful. They're a wonderful resource to include in these discussions and can help families as well as the whole care team try to outline what are priorities in care. Um, and it's okay to not be sure um, and for the priorities to change. And so, you know, that's not an uncommon conversation that I'll have with some of our families that what you want today may be different um, six months from now or even a few weeks from now. And it's okay for us to change our minds about what is our number one goal versus, um, versus what's our number five goal. And so we need to be fluid with, with things as clinical course changes. So I, 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 I'll add one more quick resource, if that's all right. Yeah. Um, there, there was a textbook uh, released uh, late last year, or I think it was late last year, uh, perhaps the beginning of this year, uh, entitled Palliative Care in Nephrology. Uh, Alvin Moss uh, was the lead editor on it. It's a very good uh, and helpful resource, although it'll be notable to readers that it lacks any pediatric chapter or any particular pediatric consideration in it. Wow. <laughs> you know, uh, somehow I'm not surprised, Aaron, because I think, I mean, I'll be the first one to confess that, you know, for a long time in my head, palliation was something that came at the end of the journey where we had run out of all options of care. So it has been an education, especially amongst our community, that we do this all the time. We just have to reframe how we think about these things and when we offer these to families and what are the simple practical things that we can do which will improve their quality of life, even if they're on this continuum of ESRD or ESKD. Sarah, you called it ESKD, so I... <laughs> I'm going to stick with that. I'm always, I'm not going to get in the middle of the renal versus kidney debate right now. <laughs> uh, 
but th that is a great point. And thank you for those resources. We will make sure that we tweet those out to all of our memberships to use. That's, that's a great point. I was particularly very impressed by um, uh, the, the sort of testimonials from the families that you presented in your talk, because I think that sticks around in your mind much more than any sort of textbook-based learning. Dr. Flynn, um, you had something to say. No, I would just point out that two recent publications uh, really have served to bring some of these issues to the fore. Uh, Aaron and Taylor House have a paper in, was it Kidney 360, I think, right, Aaron? Yes. And then um, in, in, our, in the journal, the Pediatric Nephrology Journal, we've just published a review from the group at Great Ormond Street. And so I think those two papers uh, together, you know, complement each other quite nicely and can serve as a resource for people. I have the 361 in the chat. I don't have the PedNF resource at. Yeah, I'm not sure if ours is online yet or if it's still in press. It might be out. I have to look. That'll be great. We will be sure to have all of these up um, with the sediment podcast notes uh, so people can access those. Uh, but I think we're going to now turn our attention. It's great to have this symposium on the same day as we had the Onco-Nephrology Symposium because, uh, you know, a lot of children who end up on dialysis and re renal replacement therapies are, you know, starting out as oncology patients. So, um, Sudha, you have some questions for our panel? Yes. So, um, because I was uh, thinking about, like, when I looked up the um, symposium sessions today, there was early, late, and uh, complications of uh, oncology patients and also PTLD post-transplant. That made me think, what are your thoughts about uh, pediatric onconephrology? I know that, like, we take care of the kids from the diagnosis of cancer with hypertension or simple proteinuria to uh, post-nephrectomy or post-nephrectomy and as uh, Sudhaji mentioned with um, kidney replacement therapy, et cetera. So where are we at in terms of pediatric onconephrology at this point? Thank you, Sudha. I think that this is a really burgeoning field. And you know we've always thought of onconephrology previously as where do our patients get cancer, which thankfully is low in the Wilms tumors or the PTLDs. But now we have this really expanding area of patients who've been through a prior cancer of some sort, and not just the hypertension and the proteinuria, the advancing CKD now, the greater numbers of children who get to end-stage kidney disease uh, have to need a kidney transplant themselves. And the field is going to just keep getting bigger because as more and more medical therapies come for cancer, there is greater recognition of the different types of nephrologic toxicities that may not have been obvious with those therapies as they were being developed, but are becoming more obvious through the clinical application in humans. Um, so it was just eye-opening to listen to the different possibilities. And as children go through the different cancer therapies, they go through hematopoietic stem cell transplants. That introduces a whole new set of kidney challenges itself. And uh, so just an incredible wealth of information that we got today. Thank you, Vikas. I was just gonna say, you know, I think it, it provides an example of what's really coming for us um, as pediatric nephrologists. Our patient population is really changing. 
Um, I think we have our primary kidney kits um, or they have a primary kidney diagnosis versus we're now seeing a lot more children that have uh, other primary source for their kidney related disease. And um, that overall um, makes their care a lot more complex um, and they're a lot more different um, types of problems that need to be addressed as, as we help care coordinate um, their, the different services that are involved in meeting their needs, if that makes sense. Yeah, and uh, personally, I, you know, was, I really wanted to mention Dr. Research's talk was really good, um, very educational, you know, um, because just as uh, oncologists are you know, breaking through many barriers and coming up with immunotherapies, we've got to keep track of all the um, kidney uh, injury that can occur with these uh, newer agents and uh, talking about the uh, VEGF inhibitors and things like that. We've acquired some familiarity with this in the past few years, but the new agents coming out on the horizon, I think that was a great talk and I think everyone should catch it and um, look through, you know, the things that we should be watching out for protecting the kidneys like Jedi warriors, <laughs> like he said in his talk. So the, that was a great talk too. Vikas, uh, Vikas, do you want to add any uh, points from today's symposium, like take home message? I think there were several great points that came across. Some people have already mentioned so many new drugs coming across, not just the VEGF inhibitors, but the EGFR inhibitors, CAR T therapy, all of right. which variety of kidney toxicities inhibitors. related to cytokine release syndrome, tumor lysis, or electrolyte abnormalities from tubulopathies. Um, the other things that really struck me were when um, Sangeeta Hingarani talked about uh, with hematopoietic stem cell transplants, the mortality can be very high if they get kidney failure, and particularly how that dichotomy works when you get to greater than 10% fluid overload versus yeah. to keep them under that number with the aggressive use of diuretics. This is something we have known about for a while, but here now we have actual data that we can put our hands around and show others, you know, this is where you can uh, lower the mortality from 90%, the astonishing number down to 50%, still astonishing, but better. And then um, with Ben Laskin's work, uh, where he showed that, you know, we think of BK virus as something that affects kidney transplants, but they have a big problem with that in the hematopoietic world, and it can be silent there too. And that BK viremia, how that can affect the kidney function. So patients who had high-level BK viremia uh, they had much lower uh, estimated GFRs as they went out one, two, and three years after their hematopoietic stem cell transplant. And that's probably a big cause of chronic kidney disease that we have not appreciated. So I think several great takeaways that came from there, things that I will use in my practice, and I would recommend that all of you do as well. Absolutely. I think that it is a burgeoning field. It's, it's, it feels like it's a field in its infancy, but I think it's more of us recognizing that uh, there are things that we can do actively to protect those kidneys as these children go through these um, uh, terrible uh, cancer therapies. Um, and I think, um, you know, just to you know, the, the move over into the field of uh, end-stage renal disease and things like that um, and palliation, but it feels like we, there are things we can do, clear things that we can do to halt that progression. So uh, a lot of good takeaways from that session, absolutely.
I think uh, early identification is the key. So um, a group from St. Jude recently published uh, a paper regarding the effect of uh, cancer therapies, not just chemo, but like other infectious therapy, et cetera, on the chronic kidney disease. They found out that like um, the, ins that the prevalence of chronic kidney disease stages three to five is about 2% particularly associated with any tacrolimus use or if there is um, iphosphamide, alkylating agents or cisplatinum use or dose of radiation, et cetera. So we being aware of those issues and screening the population, I think would also benefit um, the kidneys of those kids. Yes, so overall, it was a day of great programming at ASPN, and I just want to go around and ask all the panelists for their last impressions, like one-liner about what 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 is the takeaway from today? We'll start with Dr. Somers. My takeaway has to do with, um, again, I was impressed by needing to know more knowledge about a lot of the new therapies, but it also left me hoping that we as a community can work towards our own new therapies as well, because that's something that, you know, in the world of, of kidney disease, and especially in the world of end-stage kidney disease, you know, what we're doing now in many ways isn't so much different than what we have been doing in the past. Um, and I think it's important for us to, to understand and learn from some of the communities that have been able to move forward and advocate for the funding and research and support the research that will allow us to go forward with, with new therapies. But, um, you know, I find every, every time I, I go to PAS and, and sit in a session where I think that, oh, this doesn't relate to me or this isn't going to be, you know, anything that <laughs> is of particular interest, you're always surprised at how many connections things have to what you do um, and what you want to do. Right. One of our critical care uh, uh, physicians is fond of saying the brain bone is connected to the kidney bone is connected to the heart bone. So, you know, we think it may not be of relevance, but turns out that, you know, everything is all interconnected. Well, you know, it's interesting always to be at the PAS because there's all of the excellent science that's being presented in the ASPN piece. And then there's the whole rest of the meeting. And I did a lot of jumping around and particularly trying to, uh, there was a really great uh, session uh, sponsored by APS on uh, equity and uh, improving diversity in the academic workforce. And, you know, that whole issue I think is so important and it does touch everything we do as Michael says that you know these are things that we have to think about also as um, pediatric nephrologists as academic faculty members taking that sort of higher level view of you know what um, you know all the other impacts that we have across our medical schools across our hospitals and um, the work that we somehow need to find the time to do to make um, those things better. I think it's, you know, it's great, as many people have mentioned earlier, having the ability to do a virtual meeting allows us to be able to attend. So many more people can attend. I do miss the personal interactions. Um, it, I would love to be able to get back to actually seeing all of you in person. Uh, but there is an advantage to this in 
the setting that we're in. And hopefully hybrid meetings, I think, will be the wave of the future where the people who can meet will meet. Um, it's good to be away from work so that you're not always getting bombarded at work when you want to listen to sessions. But then there will be times when we can't go to the meeting and we'll still have that opportunity to learn from each other and learn about all the great things just in this last three days. Yeah, I think I would echo what others have said. I've taken away that we can do this meeting virtually, that there's a lot of benefits to this virtual meeting, and that the great thing about having the ASPN meeting within the larger PAS is that you can you can go to that session on the on the brain bone or the equity <laughs> bone and, and realize how much they all they all really do um, come together. So I've really enjoyed that part of the meeting so far. Um, and then, of course, from the session that I was a part of today, if I'm taking away one phrase, it's that uh, palli palliative care involvement should be early and often, um, and that this is really a part of the care that we give kids with um, chronic kidney disease, both with our primary palliative care that we can provide and also with the specialty care of, of our colleagues um, uh, who we can consult. So that's what I'll take away. Yeah, I, um, you know, I, I agree with with much of what's been said. I'll, I'll add that I I'm, uh, want to appreciate, and I know Michael mentioned this at the beginning, but really uh, appreciate Maury Pinsk's efforts uh, in in helping to put this together along with the program committee. I, I, I it's an incredible challenge, um, and I I. I um, I've particularly appreciated at this PAS the opportunity to participate in greater uh, sessions and learning in uh, scholarships surrounding issues of health equity and structural injustices and racism. Uh, and and want to uh, highlight and call out the efforts within ASPN led by uh, Nicole Hayden and, and Kia Sanderson uh, in, in leading that committee, which is actually meeting concurrently with this recording. <laughs> Yes, yes. Sadly, we had to miss that to record this one. Uh, thank you. And Sarah, last but not the least, and last thoughts about uh, today's um, proceedings. Well, I think I'd like to quote um, uh, Dr. Ami Doshi. Um, and she said, mm -hmm. the goal is to add life to children's years, not simply add years to a child's life. And I think the meeting really summar, you know, summarizes that quote very nicely. We're learning about novel therapies, how they apply to improving um, kidney disease, what research opportunities exist, and where we are going with uh, therapeutics, and then how they can apply on an everyday basis to uh, the care that we're delivering uh, minute by minute to our patients. Uh, thank you, everyone, for uh, joining us for this wonderful session. I, uh, I would like to thank each and every one of you for coming in here for such a short notice, which proves that we can, we, we have um, shoulders to lean on and everybody will come in if we ask for help. And uh, this is um, last but one episode of um, The Sediment. And uh, we'll meet you all again tomorrow. Thank you all. Good night and stay safe.